Good morning, everyone. Good morning. New life. So, welcome. Yeah. He's Jared today. I'm Jared. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm Kent, excuse me. And this is my wife, Julie, and we're the Utterbacks. That's right. And uh, as you can see, Kent here loves his Rams. And uh, my team didn't even make it, so what, whatever. <laughs> but we... Um, we were just talking, this week was challenging for us. We're, we, um, we're, we vote on different sides of the aisle. So coming mm -hmm. together in the middle uh, for Team Jesus is what it's about, right? Amen. Amen. So welcome yeah. everybody from on the patio. Welcome everybody that's online. And if you are new online, please let us know uh, that uh, you are new and that we'd like to connect with you. So make sure we get a message from you. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you who are new, we'd love to get to know you better and would love to have you come out and meet us at the connection booths. We have two in the hallway and one in the patio, and we have a free gift. Not a bad deal. And uh, oh, pizza. Pizza with the pastor. Yeah. Today is pizza with the pastor. Yes. Those of you that are new or maybe you've come for a while and you just want to get to know a little bit more about who we are in New Life, going to meet our pastors and our staff, our wonderful um, people that do service here mm -hmm. and out in the community, please come by today. It's yep. a, after the 11 o'clock service, so just come back uh, around 12, 12, 15, and um, enjoy pizza and get to know us at New Life. We yes. would love to see you there. And if that, could we please have you stand and ask your neighbor, uh, turn around and ask your neighbor, what's their favorite sports team? And uh, prepare your hearts for worship. the risen Lord today, church. This first song we're singing is called Here For You. And in Acts chapter 17, I was reading this week and Paul is preaching in Thessalonica and he's preaching with so much zeal and passion that he actually gets sent away by his friends. His friends say, I think it would be better for you to leave this area because people are getting upset with you. You're preaching about the risen Christ and all this kind of stuff. You should go somewhere else. And Paul's like, okay, I, I, I maybe should. I don't want to die yet, right? I don't want to die for my Lord yet, but I got some more preaching to do. I got some more sharing of the good news to do, okay? And so he goes to Athens and he starts doing the same thing, right? But the people in Athens, they're philosophers and they're hearing the stories of Paul and they're curious. So Paul, in their curiosity, to kind of talk to them through it a little bit. We see this in, uh, in verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addresses them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way, for as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and on one of your altars, it had the inscription on it, to an unknown God. 
And then he goes on to tell them, I know who I worship. Paul says that, I know who I worship. And he's not unknown, he's made himself known. He is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He died on a cross for my sins and he's prepared a place for me with him in paradise. And so this morning, I wanna ask you the question, what are you here for? We're singing this song. It's the first song of the set. We are here for you. What is the object of your worship this morning? If you're gathered for fellowship, if you're gathered just for the sermon, if you're gathered for anything other than worship to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong, but they're not greater than worshiping God, okay? And so we're gathered together, not as individuals, but as one body to lift up one voice to worship Him. So together, let's bow our heads and close our eyes and say, Lord, come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. We wanna encounter you in new and fresh ways this morning. And so with all we have and with all we are, we give you our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Let it 
this offering. Thank you, God. Jesus, would you just disciple us in your teachings and in your way, Lord. We sing. And if you curse me, then I will bless you. And if you hurt me, I will forgive. If you hate me, then I will love you. I choose the Jesus way. If you're helpless, I will defend you. And if you're burdened, I'll share the if you're hopeless, then let me show you there's hope in the Jesus way. Jesus way, oh, I 
speak those words to us, Lord, to speak that truth to us, Lord, that it is a choice, God. God, we always have a choice, Lord. Thank you for free will, Lord. And in those moments where our emotions might seem to get the best of us, God, we just submit to your authority right now, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, convict us and challenge us for all those moments and all those times, Lord, we didn't choose when we didn't choose the Jesus way. God, and for all those opportunities that we have for tomorrow and for next week and for next month and for next year and for next decade, God. All those opportunities that we have when we could strike someone back or curse them back or betray trust, Lord, we wanna choose the Jesus way, Lord. That's what this is all about, Lord, is formation, amen, and, and dying to self, amen, and being consumed by the Holy Spirit's fire so that all that is left is the character of Christ, amen. And so, God, we just invite you, Lord, to burn away all that's not there. God, as we prepare to sing this song, glory, honor, power, God, we think of the cross. We think of your sacrifice, your once and for all sacrifice that said, that's not your destiny anymore. I've prepared a place for you. God, for that, we are gathered here in this moment. That is the object of our worship, to thank you for your great love. And so we just lift up this song to you right now. Jesus, we submit our hearts to you. We submit our agendas to you right now. In Jesus' name, come and unify us in worship, we pray. Amen.
let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Jesus. If gathered to worship you, you are worthy, you are worthy, Lord, and we love you. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come quickly, your will be done the
Lord, everything is yours, including us. We belong to you, and we're grateful for that. Father, that is the sincere desire of our hearts, or my heart, I guess I could speak for myself, that your kingdom would come, that Pismo Beach would look more like heaven, that heaven would come here to our place, to this place, and that we would get a foretaste of heaven today. God, would you reveal yourself to us this morning? How would you awake our soul, as we sang earlier? Would you just awaken something within us? Our soul, the deepest part of who we are, would it be awakened to the realities of you? Would it be awakened to your love? If we've struggled to understand or grasp the depths of your love, God, would you awaken it within us this morning? Will we not leave here today without knowing how deeply and authentically and radically loved we are? We thank you for that. We give it all back to you. That love that you've poured out to us, we pour it back out to you. That's the only response. So Father, we thank you. We love you. Would you speak to us? We invite you here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Um, I'd like to invite our ushers forward to receive our offering today. Um, you know, as we talk about a lot, this is a way that we do express, we pour back out to God what he has given us. And so um, if you would like to participate um, in all of the amazing things that God is doing here at New Life, there's so many different ways to give besides just the baskets right now. You can give online. You can give through our, our new revamped app as well. Thank you to those of you who give. Um, if it's your first time here, don't feel any obligation, but we also would love to get to know you. Um, as, as the Utterbacks mentioned earlier, Pizza with the Pastor is happening today right after the 11 o'clock service. We would love to get a chance just to meet you, get to know you, figure out how we could best serve you and your family, and figure out how to, how to plug you in here at New Life, because there's a lot of ways coming up for you to get plugged in here. And one of which is we only do it a few times a year, but it's called Crash Course. And so a lot of you might have questions like, I love New Life. I love, I've been coming here a lot. How do I become a member? How do I make this thing official? You know, like have a DTR. Anybody? No? Defining the relationship? No? Nobody? Okay. Uh, it's kind of like that. Like here's kind of the gist. Here's what New Life is all about. Here's some of our history, some of our background. Here's where we think God is leading us. So it's a little bit more in depth than what you might get at Pizza with the Pastor. And Crash Course is actually also how you become a member here at New Life, if you choose. You don't have to become a member after taking Crash Course, but it is offered to you after that. Um, and so we're doing it a little bit different. Um, it is this week, starting this week, we're going to break it up into two parts. Um, so it's a little bit more manageable. It's not taking up your whole day. And so we're breaking it up in two parts. So the next two Wednesdays, days we'll be having Crash Course. We would love for you to come out, get to know us a little bit better, and maybe plug in a little bit deeper here at New Life. And because, it, like I said, it's a great time. Just And in fact, this week, our men's Bible study and our two women's Bible studies, both morning and evening, are all kicking off this week, getting back into the rhythms of life. I don't know about you, but I am so ready for some normal rhythms. We've been in vacation mode, and it's been great, but some normal rhythms would be great. So our women's and men's Bible studies are are starting up this week. We would love for you to come out to that. 
And also, you may have noticed this week and last week we've had some tables in the lobbies. Um, in the lobby, this is some of our partner ministries um, here um, on the Central Coast and around the world even. Um, so you might know there are so many needs in our community. And New Life, um, we are committed to a lot of them, but we have also recognized that there's some needs, that there are ministries that are already doing great, great work. So we would love to point you towards them. So if maybe you're passionate about special needs, teens or um, uh, teenagers in school or uh, foster care or pregnancy crisis or clean water around the world. Some of those things are things that we uh, partner with other ministries. And so you, they would love for you just to stop by and say hello and to see, um, just to hear about what God has been doing through their ministry, because God's doing some amazing things, not just through New Life, but some of the ministries that we partner with. So be sure to check them out on your way out today. And so we are going to jump into some scripture today. And just as a reminder, all of the verses not only are on the screen, but they're also on the app as well. So if you would stand with me, if you're able, I'll read these uh, verses. It's going to be kind of a couple different places. We are going to start in the book of Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say... Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is Jesus talking, by the way. And that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even the corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you any different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Thank you. And now we're going to jump to uh, John chapter 13, starting in verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe and sat down and, sa and asked... Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things... God will bless you for doing them. And then we're going to jump ahead to verse 33. This is still Jesus talking. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Let's pray. God, these words that we open up and we read today, so many of us know them, even those of us that maybe are just curious about you this morning, God. We've heard people say them or we've heard them uh, along the way of life's journey. And yet, God, what I find is they're so incredibly difficult to actually live out. And I'm reminded today, God, that these words aren't meant to just make me a little bit, little bit better person. But God, these words 
are ways that your people, that your followers, that those who declare that you are Lord and King begin to usher in the kingdom of heaven into earth. And so God, these aren't just words that somehow make us kinder. These are words that declare the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that you are king. And so shape these words into us today as we learn and choose to follow you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. As you have a seat, um, one really quick thing I wanna share with you. Uh, I don't know about you, I can just know my own experience, but raising kids is sometimes hard. Um, so if you think that raising kids is hard, whether you are a parent, whether you are an aunt, whether you are an uncle, whether you are a sibling, whether you are a grandparent, wherever you find your life stage, whether you're a mentor of kids, if you find yourself trying to raise kids and you find it difficult, I would love for you to join us um, uh, next Saturday, or this coming Saturday, the 20th, and as, you, as we gather together, myself and uh, my wife, Dana, and uh, Pastor, uh, uh, Dr. Bravo and his wife, Debbie, are going to gather together, and we're going to have a panel discussion, and we're going to be able to share what it looks like to actually decide. Some of you are like, Dr. Bravo, is that my pediatrician? Yes, that's probably some of your pediatrician. Um, but, but, that's, uh, but we're going to get together and we're going to talk about what it means to have sticky faith and how we raise our kids and what that looks like and how do we help them. Um, again, my parenting bar, just so you know, just to give you, I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert because my parenting bar, bar is pretty low. I'm trying to limit the amount of therapy my kids need when they're older. <laughs> That is my parenting bar. I know I'm gonna cause some therapy, but I'm trying to limit the amount of hours that are spent on me. And, uh, and so, uh, but truly and honestly, we are excited to be able to share. And so you can uh, register for that. You can sign up for that. There's, there's information on how to do that in your bulletin. So, um, now you might not agree with my parents' uh, parenting philosophy. Uh, they watch me. Maybe they disagree with this. I'm just kind of trying to recollect um, kind of some of my uh, childhood. But, um, you know, they, uh, not every time, but every Every now and then when I was younger, um, they would let me um, kind of, if I couldn't sleep or whatever, they'd let me like kind of lay on the couch or I'd end up watching a show that was on later at night that normally they maybe wouldn't let me uh, watch. And so I was born in 1979 and there was a show that uh, launched in 1982 that was about a dive bar in Boston. And the show was called Cheers. And every now and then, I would be able to stay up a little bit later, again, because I couldn't sleep or I didn't feel good or any number of things. And I got to know people like Sam and Woody and everybody knew Norm. And if you are below the age of 40, you have zero context for what I'm talking about right now, but that is okay. What you need to know is that conceptually in this show, you had people from various backgrounds who would all come together in this particular bar and somehow they created some piece of community in this particular bar. You had an individual who was a mailman. In fact, if you went back, if you're younger and you watched some of those, you'd recognize the mailman's voice because he's Mr. Potato Head in Toy Story. But whole different conversation. 
But all of a sudden, you would begin to recognize that you had a bar owner, you had blue collar, you had somebody named Frazier who was incredibly educated. You had people from different walks of life who didn't agree on everything. And yet, again, they found some semblance of community. And there was even a song that went with this particular show that gave you a kind of a, a glimmer of hope that somehow in our diversity, in, the, in this way that maybe we don't think alike and act alike or maybe even vote alike, that we could actually come together if you came to Cheers. Because when you came to Cheers, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. Come on, boomers, help me out. (laughs) You want to be where you can see our troubles are... And I love that none of my millennials sang. (laughs) So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like, when you think about that, and again, if you don't know the show, that's okay. But when you think about this idea of people coming from diverse backgrounds, when you think about people coming from diverse socioeconomic um, groups, when you think about people who maybe don't, not only do they not cheer for the same sports teams, as we talked about earlier in the service, they don't vote for the same people. They don't see policy the same way. They don't see these things. It seems like if they can figure out how to do community in a dive bar in Boston, how could we not figure out how to do this as the church? And if you weren't with us last year or last week, I would encourage you to go back and on our, um, on our uh, website, you can find this, to watch last week's message because it's gonna give you some context because one of the reasons we are talking about what it means and what we wanna be known for in 2024 is because if you're not aware, 2024 is an election year and I don't know about you, but the last several times we've had election years, it's been really difficult to navigate as the church, and for some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, because it was not only difficult to navigate as the church, but it was difficult and has been difficult to navigate in your family, relationships, and in your friendships. In fact, some of you are no longer friends with particular people, or you have blocked them on uh, social media platforms. Uh, Some of you have strained relationships with your children or kids. You have strained relationships with your parents because you guys see the world differently, and you're not quite sure to have how to have these really important conversations. And as we talked last week, some people might ask, why are we having a conversation about these types of things in the life of the church? Well, the reality reality is, is part of the challenge of, of the church over, I think, not only the last uh, several years, but over probably the last several decades, is that we don't talk about difficult topics in church, and we don't talk about difficult conversations in church, and guess what? The world is waiting to have these conversations with you and waiting to have these conversations with your children, and so it is better for us to have these difficult conversations in this context so that we can allow Jesus to shape us. So these are really difficult conversations. And again, part of what makes this conversation hard is we look at TV shows, whether it's um, The Office or Friends or Cheers or any number of shows, and it looks like this community thing there's even a show called Community, if you haven't seen it. If, you, if uh, we would think that this community thing would actually be easy, and yet, what we've learned over the last decade specifically is, is that it's really hard. 
It is really difficult. In fact, some people have either gotten disinvited, I don't know if that's a word, disinvited to a wedding, or you've disinvited somebody to a wedding, or you got in an argument at a family reunion, or at Christmas, or at Thanksgiving, or you again constantly see, and I'm, I'm gonna give you a little bit of a hint right now. Do you know that you can actually keep on scrolling? You don't have to say something. I just set some people free today with that. But I get it. It's challenging because you see something and you disagree with it. And some of these things, I'm not actually making light of what sometimes we're passionate about. In fact, next week, we're going to talk about the importance of the fact that you have deeply held convictions. And it's not that we shouldn't have conversations, but how do we have these conversations? It's not that we can't have opinions, but how do we have these opinions? How do we not sacrifice our relationships to the closest people in our lives for the sake of policy, for the sake of ideology, for the sake of our political party? And so what we begin to recognize over the last couple of years specifically is that things have been really hard. So the question that you might be asking yourself that you haven't quite been able to figure out or quantify or, or decide is, how did we get here? How did this begin? Because if you are older, you probably recognize that it feels at least, whether it's true or not, it feels at least that we're more divided and more disconnected. And what's insane about that is actually we're more technically connected than we ever have before, been, than we ever have been before. And yet we feel more disconnected or divided maybe than we ever have been before. And yet, as even we talked about last week, that isn't necessarily true. Yes, we feel that way, but we also have to recognize down throughout history, people have been divided. And so today, what I want to lean into, and I want you to use the texts that were read to overlay some things that I'm going to talk about over the next few moments, um, because I think one of the challenges that we have is that we have both in the church and out of the church, and I think that's key, because sometimes we're like, well, we're in the church. We don't act like that. Can I tell you something? We often act like that. And so the question for us is, how have we been maybe turning neighbors into enemies. If God has called us to love us, and this is something that we are love one another and love our enemies, and this is something that we need to recognize is that throughout the New Testament, one of the things that's proclaimed is that your love of God is expressed in your love of neighbor and enemy. You can't separate those two things. And so you can't declare and worship and lift up the name of God on Sunday or in a Bible study or in uh, some other realm and then not wrestle with the challenging. And I don't say that this is easy. This is not kumbaya. This is not simple. In fact, these are the exact things, as we talked about last week, that they crucified Jesus for, that he forgave those people that people didn't think he should forgive, that he loved people that he, that, that, uh, people didn't think that he should love, that he cared about people that other people would push to the side and to the margins of society. And so one of the challenges that we have, have is that we've actually at times been more shaped by our cultural narrative than we have been by Jesus. Now, this isn't exhaustive. Uh, otherwise, we'd be here a really long time. But I want to give you a couple of things and, and a way of beginning to understand how we have been shaped 
further by the things of culture rather than by the ways of Jesus. And I want to begin with this phrase. You have heard it said, protect your tribe at all costs. You have heard it said, protect your tribe at all costs. This is not something Jesus said. But this is something that is shaping our culture right now. And tribalism is not new, but it's costly. If you go back to the first century when Jesus is gathering his disciples and they're beginning to formulate, and one of the most fascinating things about Christianity is that if you look at other world religions, they tend to be homogeneous or they tend to be like the same types of people, ethnic uh, ethnic people coming together to worship a particular God in their particular culture. But one of the fascinating things about Christianity is that under the lordship of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have a multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic, multicultural, uh, multi-political party, uh, men and women. Again, in the context of the New Testament scripture, you have Jews and Greeks, uh, uh, Gentiles. Uh, you have people coming together and all these people are coming together under the lordship of Jesus. And you have zealots and tax collectors gathering as disciples. You have people who are slaves and people who are free. You have the rich and the poor. And all these individuals are coming together under the banner of Christ, but when they don't come under the banner of Christ, what our tendency is, is to move towards our particular tribe. The people who think like us, the people who are in the same socioeconomic class, the people who vote like us, the people who went to the same high school as us, like even there's like simple things, like some of you during this NFL playoff, sorry if you don't like football, but during this NFL playoff, some of you are gravitating towards the 49ers, some of you are gravitating towards the Rams, and if you're holy, you're rooting for my Detroit Lions. (laughs) So... But that's the thing, like we gravitate towards these different ways of thinking and connecting. And tribalism, a couple of things about tribalism. Tribalism will cost you your closest relationships. Tribalism will cost you your closest relationships. And one of the things that's happened over the last four or five years, specifically in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of really difficult political conversations, is we've become more polarized around issues, but we've also, because of that, become more isolated. In fact, studies have been done and long-term friendships and family members and things that used to be foundational in our lives became fractured. In fact, in 2023, a Harvard study was done and across the board, through the generations, we are more lonely than we ever have been before. And one of the things that's really interesting to me about about that article is that the younger generation was actually the lonely loneliest. And this is just my observation. This is not in the article, but I think that one of the reasons why the younger generations, even going down into elementary and middle school and high school, have become lonely is because their sphere or their village got fractured even more significantly over the last four to five to ten years. So when 
families begin to divide and grandma and mom don't talk anymore. And again, while this might be a message talking, kind of narrowing in on uh, what politics do to us, some of you can relate to this in other areas of your life. And so as that village became fractured, all of a sudden there wasn't that relational foundation for kids to depend on. They weren't quite sure who they could trust or who they could listen to. As we, as a culture, became more skeptical about people who were in levels of authority, guess what our kids did? They, made, they became more uncertain about levels of authority. And so this idea of uh, tribalism costs us our relationships. And here's something that just radically breaks my heart. Political leaders in the media have convinced us Many of us, not all of us, but have convinced many of us that the world and our lives will be better with our political tribe than with our family and friends. So a media expert comes on and says, you know what? If someone doesn't think like you, if someone doesn't believe like you, you are better off leaving that person behind. And whether they say it in so many words or whether it's just something that's communicated through the other narratives that they share, all of a sudden, we become more lonely. And I can tell you, as a pastor, the last 10 years have been challenging because there are individuals who you baptize their family members and you walk through people through a journey. And this isn't a sad, like a wow-wow story. This is just kind of the critical area where we are. You walk through somebody through some difficult marriage. You renew vows. You lead somebody to the Lord. And somebody chooses, after all this kind of plethora of moments of care and encouragement and all of this, They choose to fracture a relationship for temporary four-year to eight-year power. And so when you're looking at your relationships and you're looking at your friendships and you're looking at the people who are involved in your life, again, I'm not saying that we have to be silent. I'm not saying that we can't have difficult conversations. But I think what I want to express to us is that we are letting go of significant relationships for uh, an ideology or a political party who actually just wants our vote and nothing more. And so that's what I'm concerned about for us as a church and why we call this, um, why we call this series known for it is because as the church, we have the opportunity to lead in a significant way in this political season, in this season of unrest. The second thing that tribalism does is it escalates your anxiety. It escalates your anxiety, and some of these are very real ways that we have sensed anxiety. For some of us, um, one of the ways this escalates our anxieties, um, or we respond to this, is that we become crusaders. And when we become crusaders, we fear people outside of our own tribe, and we fear, and this is very real, so I'm not minimizing this. This is a very real feeling. We fear that if we don't speak up, And if we don't speak up with passion, we will lose our city, we will lose our communities, we will lose our schools, we will lose our families, we will lose our nation. 
And so we speak with passion and we speak with urgency and we speak sometimes with a tone that doesn't always quite communicate what is really going on in our hearts and minds. But the challenge with being a crusader is, is that one, it tends to lend itself towards responding because of fear. And one of the tactics of those who are crusaders and are fearful is that we begin to label people. And neither of those things are a part of following Jesus. Neither labeling people or dehumanizing them or operating in this continual state of fear is about following Jesus. Fear, or when we operate in fear, we always need an enemy. Think about the passages that we just read and loving our enemies. Fear is a byproduct of always saying, you know, I'm not gonna love my enemy. I'm always gonna be afraid of my enemy. That is nowhere that's a context in the scriptures to be afraid of our enemy. It is that we will love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And here's a fascinating thing. People who lead in fear, and both politicians have done this, and to be quite honest, pastors and church leaders have led in this way. They have taken the tactic of the world rather than choosing to lead like Jesus. And one of the challenging things that you might wanna think about when you're following somebody who is leading with fear is people who promote fear can never claim victory. Because if all of a sudden they say, hey, there's nothing to be afraid of anymore, then they can't monetize that. They can't control you. They can't dictate what your actions are. And so they can never claim victory. They constantly keep perpetuating. If they feel like you have a little bit of victory in one fear, guess what they do? They go to a different fear. Or if they think they have a level of victory in a fear, they say, oh, don't be careful. Now they're gonna try to take this from us. And while I understand there's nuance here and I understand that there's a level of truth to a statement even like that, we can't operate that way. And the reason we can't operate that way is because in 1 John chapter four, we are reminded in the context of loving God, this passage is, in the context of loving neighbor, we're reminded that perfect love casts out fear. So we have to learn how to lean into our love of God and lean into our love of neighbor so that we don't become a a people who labels people and in labeling, we dehumanize. Now, you're gonna get really uncomfortable here for a moment if you're not already. Because I have a list of, these are not necessarily people in our church, these are just Christians that I know through social media, and I wrote down the various things that they have posted, and I'm not giving anybody's names, don't worry. (laughs) But I want you to recognize the labels that are utilized in some of these posts. And I'm gonna start out really simple. Liberal, conservative. It sounds so simple. It's like a gateway drug. Because when you begin to just see people as just that, you move them to another category. And when you move them to another category, you begin to dehumanize them. Woke, bigot. Doesn't sound like love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't sound like love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Like, well, we just talk about that when it's just us Democrats together or just us Republicans together. It seeps into your thinking. Trumper, 
Snowflake. Misogynist. Wacko liberal. These are really, really subtle. All Republicans. All Democrats. Go Brandon. Idiot. Fanatic. Coward. Hippie. Loser. Nutjob. Un-American. The subtle ways. These aren't coming from people who don't know Jesus. These are coming from people. And I intentionally took them from people who proclaim that Jesus is king and proclaim that we love God and we love neighbor and that we're committed to walking out the ways of Jesus. And we're wondering right now why the church may not have the influence that we have. And we're wondering why we aren't walking in the level of authority that we can choose to walk in under the authority of Jesus Christ. And we want to point to the world and say, it's the world's fault, church, it's our fault. We have become more like the world and look less like Jesus. And all of a sudden, we can't see that somebody is created in the image of God. We can only see their ideology or their political party when we begin to label them. We begin to draw all or nothing lines, not just on a few things, but in every thing. The second area of tribalism is the hunted, a fear of being canceled, very much something that people are dealing with in our particular culture. And so what happens is that we, be, we begin to be fearful of everybody around us and canceling us. And then again, we go to this position of um, uh, kind of digging in our heels and labeling and kind of amping up to the level that we feel like we have the potential to be accused of. Now, fear and anxiety are a very helpful thing. Like if you, um, if you have a healthy fear of heights or of danger, that's really good. You actually teach your kids, hey, don't go out in the street in oncoming traffic. A healthy fear of anxiety is actually some, uh, a way that we're protected. But what happens is we begin to project that type of fear on everybody and anybody we come in contact that doesn't, that votes different than us, that thinks different than us, that might watch a different political show than us, all of a sudden, the moment they say that, it heightens our senses and we're like, I've gotta be afraid. And instead of loving our neighbor, instead of loving our enemy, all of a sudden that becomes the lens that we use. When you feel everyone in the other tribe is out to get you, Jesus' call to love enemies and your neighbor becomes suggestions because it's not relevant in light, and I've heard this so many times, of the bigger issues, pastor. There's big issues going on. Yes, there are. But none of those big issues will ever be heard if we don't love our neighbor as we have been loved and love one another as we have been loved. And so maybe something to ask yourself. Is anyone, I know the political heads and I know the, the, the media and I know social media says that this is happening, but is anyone trying to actively ruin your reputation or cancel you right now? If you're like me, I'm not important enough to be canceled. You probably aren't either, no offense. <laughs> and so what happens is 
we heighten our senses because they're like, they're trying to cancel everybody. They're trying to cancel everybody. They're trying to cancel everybody. Maybe not. If you are, then realize that it's a threat. Realize that it's a threat. Seek help. If it's legitimate, seek help. Talk to somebody. Third area of this tribalism is bystanders, um, a fear of breaking with your own tribe to speak truth to their own people. They don't agree with their own tribe, but they don't want to see, seem sympathetic to the others, right? So you become kind of this bystander. And so question for you maybe to write down if you're taking notes is what do you do when you dis- disagree with your tribe? I think, I think this could go a long way in our conversations, I think part of the challenge over the last 10 years has been that we have been so committed to our tribe, we're afraid to critique our tribe. I critique the Church of the Nazarene. Yes, I'm being taped right now, and all my people who are above me, I don't agree with everything the Church of the Nazarene does. I critique my own tribe. That is an okay thing to do. Really honest conversations about, hey, I'm voting in this particular way for one, two, and three, and I radically disagree with my tribe in here, here, and here. It would go a long way. In fact, I heard one of, my, one of the artists that I, that I listened to, he said it this way. I, I don't even know if this is a real thing, so maybe I, I'm probably mispronouncing it. But apparently you can, you can um, clean with like chamomile or something like that. Some of you might know this. Or like, let's just like, like some, type of, some type of like very like, you know, environmentally friendly type product. And I'm sure that um, it works and it's better for the environment and all that. But let's stop saying that it like blasts things like bleach does. Because bleach works better. (laughs) Now, it might be reasons why you don't want to use bleach because it literally kills everything. So I'm okay with that. But like, let's like not get into, like, you understand what I'm saying? Like, 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 let's not like pretend that things don't have issues. It's okay to say, hey, you know what? I use this really environmentally healthy product because it's good for my family. Hey, you know, sometimes it doesn't get things quite as clean as maybe this thing that is really bad for my family. But you know, I think it's, I still use it. And and, and what I'm saying, I just probably offended more people with that comment. I don't know. But (laughs) But here's what, I, here's what I'm trying to get at is we need to have really honest conversations about critiquing our tribe. Like this is important and I think it would go a long way if you're having generational challenges talking to your um, kids or people like if you're, um, or to your parents about, that's where you don't have to be like, well, all our policies are right and all yours are of the devil. That's not true. It's not true. And so you need to be able to point to the things and the reasons why you... Um, are voting in a particular way or, or, or you lean towards a particular way and then you need to be able to point to and critique and say, you know what? This is where my tribe gets it wrong and I'm gonna be a squeaky wheel in my tribe about this particular issue because it's that important. And so you have these different aspects where we don't speak up because we fear. Let me ask you this. Does living in fear of others make your life richer? Does living in fear of others make your life richer? Sin rejects God's version of humanity by choosing division over oneness. Jesus' tribe is for all people. It's the only tribe that is for all people. 
Galatians chapter 2, 26 says this, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have been put on, have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Now, if you're not familiar with the context, here's what's going on. The people of Abraham were saying, no, 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 you can't be a, a part of God's promises because you're not of the bloodline of Abraham. Church, may it never be said of us that we would say, you can't be a part of God's promises because you don't vote like me. Can we have really robust conversations about policy and what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to allow who Jesus is to shape us? And yeah, 100%. But if you place those things in front of the work of Christ Jesus on the cross, that's heresy. Blasphemy, I would even say. Because Jesus opens up and throws open the doors to all people. So, and I know that I'm in my notes more than I normally am, but this is because I want to be very specific, very clear. What if Jesus' followers did Jesus-y things? You like that? That feels like a t-shirt. I don't know. Pastor Phil, uh, you know, like, it feels like a, a, a t-shirt. What if Jesus' followers did Jesus-y Things. In fact, I got that because Pastor Dan, one of our, our, our pastors here, um, sometimes when we leave a meeting, he will say, go do some Jesus-y things. And I'm like, I like that. Let's go do some Jesus-y things. Jesus, with this idea, you just don't, we can't do Jesus-y things if we have to do worldly things or we feel like we're doing worldly things and then we use a Bible verse to back up our worldly position. We have to be really careful about that. You can actually proof text the Bible to say almost anything you wanted to. People use the Bible for a really long time to defend slavery. I've heard people sit in my office and defend all kinds of things based on the Bible. And so we need to be very careful and you allow Jesus to become the lens by which we read the scriptures. Jesus invited his disciples and he invites you and I to turn and repent from what's normal. Repent, to turn and do something different. So what's normal in our culture is to be, to label each other. What's normal in our culture is to push people to the margins. What's normal in our culture is not do the hard work of loving our enemy and loving our neighbor and trying to figure out how to actually do the hard work of, of rolling up our sleeves and doing relationship. Let, again, I want to be clear here. Some people think when we start talking about loving other people, it's like, oh, we're supposed to be sweet and kind. And, you know, it's, Gumdrops and uh, lollipops or something like that. Loving other people is really hard. Loving other people is really hard. But can I tell you this? We've tried name calling. We've tried fear. We've tried boycotting. We've tried banning. And it hasn't worked nearly as effectively as what Jesus and his disciples did when they loved others. 
Jesus has a better way of love and forgiveness and care and generosity and the proclamation of truth. He has a better way. And so in, in uh, John 13, verse 30, uh, starting at verse 34, it says from our original text, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove, that the, prove to the world that you are my disciples, the context for this verse, as was read in the beginning, is Jesus is washing his disciples' feet and preparing to lay down his life for his disciples. And in that context, he says, this is how I want to love you, how I want you to love one another, just as I have loved you. Jesus would bind his followers together, and anybody who would follow him after that, by these words, that they would recognize that they have been loved by God and therefore would love one another. And this is not a natural group of people who would love one another when you look at the disciples. Matthew is a tax collector. He cheated people out of money. And here you have him sitting at this particular uh, table. Peter is going to deny Jesus three times in the coming hours. He is at this particular table. James and John, as we even talked about last week, are st- have been around Jesus from the beginning and still don't get it and want to be first in his kingdom when he's calling them to be a servant and a slave. Judas is sitting there and he will betray Jesus. What these individuals hoped for is actually what some of us have hoped for, Joshua 2.0. In fact, if you know anything about the Hebrew language and the Greek language, the, what we term the name Jesus is actually the term Yeshua, which means Joshua. And so many people were not looking for a Messiah that looked like Jesus. They were looking for a second Joshua who's gonna be a military leader who is gonna come and rid them of Roman occupation. Some of us are still looking for Joshua rather than Jesus. Here's what's so fascinating in my study this week though. Jesus doesn't leverage fear when he gives this commandment. He doesn't say, love others as I, love one another as I have loved you. And if you don't, that's actually how the kingdoms of this world operate. Do this or else. Jesus doesn't operate that way. He says, I have a new commandment to you, for you. Here's how you know how to live it out. Love one another just as I have loved you. So Matthew, when I came to you, you were cheating people out of stuff, money. You were abusing the system, Matthew. And I invited you to come and follow me. Peter, we've had our conversations. You know who you are. (laughs) James and John, really? Let's be honest, you were fishermen. You weren't the brightest tools in the shed. I don't know if they really were. What I'm saying is God's grace is evident in every one of our lives. And this is what actually began to allow Christianity, which was a derogatory term. People didn't wanna be called Christians. It was what you called people who you didn't like who were different than the empire. This is what allowed the message of Jesus to spread throughout and transform an empire. This is what it was. In fact, we have evidence of this and not from Christians. There's a Roman emperor named Trajan 
in AD 110. And Trajan received a, le- received a letter from one of his Roman governors named Pliny the Younger. I like that, Pliny the Younger. I'm like becoming David the Elder, not David the Younger. So I like that. Pliny the Younger. And Pliny the Younger was given instructions from, from Emperor Trajan to go and find the Christians and basically execute them. But he was a little bit concerned because he wasn't quite sure. I mean, this is his, his new position. He wants to you know, make himself known in his particular world. And so he wants to make sure that, that he's doing things right. And so he writes the Roman emperor and says, hey, you know, I have some questions about how I'm supposed to go about doing this. But before he sends the letter, he actually arrests some Christians and he tortures them and he gets information out of them. Here's, so we have historical documentation of a non-Christian talking about what the Christians were doing during this particular day. One of the things that he mentions in the letter is that they have a superstition. The superstition equals resurrection. So these people believed in this idea that Jesus was raised from the dead, and so this was at the forefront of their mind. He says, um, Emperor Trajan, one of the things that they do is that they met together, they meet together one day a week on a regular basis before dawn, before the workday begins. I wonder what happened if we met before dawn, before the workday began. Probably a lot less people, but they met before. And when they get together, they sing songs to Christ who they say is their God. Then they make a commitment to one another and to their community to not steal or commit adultery. And they vow to pay back money that they owe. I also arrested these two slave women who they called deaconesses. And I recognize that this movement is comprised of males and females, older and younger, and people from various social classes. These these people are found in towns and they're found in villages. And in my torturing, while some people recanted their faith, what I realized was that true Christians will never recount their faith. Then he says this, and this is directly from the letter. That's just kind of highlights from the letter. This is directly from the letter. It'll be on the screen. It seems to me a matter worthy of consultation, meaning he's writing Trajan especially because of the number endangered. So he sees this movement as a dangerous movement. For many of every age and every rank and even both sexes are called into danger and will be, call- and will be called. The contagion of this superstition was spread not only through the towns but also villages and even the rural areas. Now, Pliny was hopeful that reform could take place. But he was afraid that if this contagion in the early part of the the first century began to spread, that they would lose control of the empire. And what transpired over the next several hundred years was a small group that some considered a cult, some considered a sect, who believed that Jesus was their savior. 
and in the power of the resurrection began to live out their lives in response to who Jesus was. And they begin to usher in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And literally, if you look throughout church history, they literally transformed an empire and they didn't do it the way that a normal earthly empire would transform an area. They did it as they loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They did it as they loved their enemies and prayed for those who persecuted them. They did it as they loved one another and people began to scratch their heads and say, how do different classes and different ethnicities and different uh, sexes and different, how do all these people come together and do life together? How does that Happen, and they were able to proclaim it's because of what Jesus has done in us. And the message of the gospel reached everyone, and the message of the gospel was for all people, not just one segment of the population, but for everyone. We've tried over the last 50 years specifically, to find ways of saying, let's take our country back. Let's change this nation. Let's do this. But can I be honest with you? Many of the tactics that the church has used looks just like the world. What if? What if what we were known for was the same things that Christians were known for when they transformed the Roman Empire? What if, as we loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as self, as we loved our enemies and prayed for those who persecuted us, that we would be salt and light? That people who've also felt the division of our country, who also felt lonely, would all of a sudden ask, is there something greater to believe in? Is there something more to this life? Is there something more that I can place my hope in? And we got to say yes, and his name is Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and we submit our lives before you. Search our hearts, God. Change us, shape us, mold us so that we might look more like you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go today, may you go in the power and the authority of Jesus who called us to love others as he has loved us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Grace and peace to you. We'll see you next week.